what the people say they mean or how they are using it. There are a number that you could go through and talk about in terms of passages that are misused like that. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Usually used in some kind of athletic situation, which has no application or meaning to it all. Unless you mean to do it in a godly way. There are others that can really get to me sometimes. Another one that gets to me, and you'll hear this one a lot in the political season in the midst of all that's going on is Matthew 7, 1. Judge not, lest you be judged. Which simply most people take to mean, don't tell me what God's word says is right and wrong. I don't want to hear it. There are others. We talk about Proverbs 29, 18. Without a vision, the people perish. That mean what most people think it But there are three in the context of renewal as we talk about renewal or revival or refreshing that really, really get to me. Please don't use these passages in these ways. The first one deals with prayer, and prayer is so much an element, an aspect of renewal and revival and refreshment that will run out of people, you'll hear them use this particular passage. I will do whatever you ask in my name, John 14, 13 through 14, so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. See, the problem with that verse is some people say that the name of Jesus is some kind of incantation. You stick in the middle of a, of a prayer or at the end of a prayer. and There's nothing wrong with praying in Jesus' name. Unless what you mean by that is, I put this incantation on, I say in Jesus' name, and the Father and the Son are obligated to give me what I just said. I claim that beamer in the name of Jesus. And to that... I say this. Amazing. Every word of what you just said was wrong. You see, in the context, it's a wonderful passage dealing with prayer. And in the name of Jesus, it's not an incantation that I throw on the end. In the name of Jesus means that I pray in submission to the authority and the will and the character of God. And God says that I will accomplish anything and I have the ability to accomplish anything that is in conformity to my will and my character. Beloved, when we pray that way, it's powerful. That becomes important when we talk about renewal. Praying in submission to the authority and the will of God Praying in a way that reflects God's character. Praying in a way that pleases God and for the things that please God. Here's another one on my top three. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. 
If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. The problem with this verse, it has nothing to do with evangelism. This is not Jesus saying to somebody, ask Jesus into your heart and you'll be saved. See, the problem is, I don't ask Jesus into my heart. I ask him to forgive me. I accept his death and work on the cross. This has nothing to do with evangelism. And for those that use it in that way, I say... Amazing. Every word of what you just said was wrong. Why do I get upset? Because... Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, when used in evangelism, becomes a misproclamation of the gospel. The gospel was not me asking Jesus into my heart. One of my children, who was quite, quite precocious as a child, they all were, one time declared to us, to, to Cindy and I, why is Jesus in my heart? I want him in my ear, then I can hear him. It's not about asking Jesus into your heart. It's about accepting what he has accomplished and done on the cross and putting my faith and trust in the fact that Christ is my payment for sin. And we want to declare the gospel clearly. But the other thing that really I struggle with that is Revelation chapter 3 is about church renewal. It's about a church, Laodicea, who had become indifferent that was no longer productive for the gospel. They were neither hot nor cold. They, they had lost the impact they had on their community. And God was saying, let's renew. I'm standing here, Laodicea. I am knocking at the door. I want to renew who you are as a local body of Christ. We miss it. And then the last one is this one. You say, wait a minute, Keith, you're preaching on it. I know. If my people who are called by name, my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and will heal God's country, America, to restore to its greatness its wonder, its power. I will, and go on, I will prosper it. I will grow it. I will do all of these things. And what I want to say to that is simply Amazing. Every word of what you just said was wrong. You usually hear that verse kind of pulled out during the you know, day of prayer. And I love the day of prayer, but don't use that verse. Or gather around the flagpole. It is not a promise that God will renew the United States. So the question becomes, okay, if if it's not that, what is it? What is 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14? What is it all about? Why is it so important? Why are we going to spend 30, 35 minutes this morning talking about this passage? Why are we going to focus on it for the next four weeks? 
Because though it is not a promise to restore the United States to some political whatever, and by the way, I pray for that, but I don't use that verse. This is what it is. It is a proclamation of exactly what we declared last week, and we'll declare next week, and we'll declare two weeks after that, and the week after that, and the week after that, and the week after that. It is proclaiming this, that renewal among God's people flows from a prayerful response to our spiritual dissatisfaction. It is a call to renewal and revival, but not for the United States. It is this, as we defined it last week, Renewal or or revival or refreshment of God's people is a sovereign, unique, periodic, and temporary outpouring of the Holy Spirit used to revitalize God's people, accomplished through normal spiritual practices and demonstrated by nominal Christians in name only being saved, sleepy Christians waking to an overwhelming sense of God's love, presence, and call and the non-believing world saying, man, something's going on. In order to understand 2 Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 14, you have to begin in 2 Chronicles chapter 5, verse 2. And Solomon has just finished building this magnificent temple, and it's time to dedicate the temple. And so in in 2 Chronicles chapter 5 and verse 2, they gather together with the temple in the background and they begin to carry in the Ark of the Covenant and they make their way down and up to the mount that, that the temple is built on and they make their way into the temple court and they make their way into the temple and they make their way into the Holy of Holies and as they're setting it down and they're singing, God is good, His loving kindness lasts forever. Right in the middle of the song, they are so overwhelmed suddenly the glory of God descends. And the preachers become speechless. Miracle. The glory comes. Chapter 6. Solomon is standing out in front of the temple on on a bronze platform. And behind him, he's looking at the temple and and all that's going on. And this glory descending, and it says, he turns around with all of these activities going on behind him. And he begins to pray for the dedication of the temple. What's so interesting is the writer of Chronicles spends more time on that prayer than anything else in the entire book. And what he begins to pray is, God, we know that you're you're way off there. God, you're transcendent. But this temple reminds us that you're also right here. And when your people come into your presence and we begin to pray in the midst of our struggles, in the midst of our concerns and our difficulty, God, hear us. 
soon as he finishes, the glory now doesn't just descend upon the ark, but the glory comes down and a fire from heaven that burns up all the, the sacrifices. Talk about a dramatic entrance. And they're overwhelmed. That's a spiritual high. If you, if you trace out, you know, that, that those ebbs and flows of our Christian experience, that, that, that's one of the flows. That's one where the Spirit is rushing in and God's presence is there in a unique way. But you all know the intensity and the emotion doesn't last and it begins to ebb and there's sort of a normalness that returns to our life. The glory was still there, but the fire wasn't coming down from heaven. It, it didn't in, 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 you know, envelop the entire temple. Now it was just in the Holy of Holies. There's a normalness of life that begins to happen. And I want you to notice something. Notice in Second Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 11. Up until this point, it deals with the dedication of the temple. And then it says these words. When Solomon had finished the temple, okay, we uncheck, and the royal palaces. Did you catch that? Why is that important? Because the passage we're going to look at this morning takes place 13 years later. After that big, huge impact of God's word and, and God's activities in their lives and that unique presence of the Lord, it's now 13 years later. And Solomon has finished the, the, not only the temple, but now he's finished his palace. Things have begun to ebb. And what God says in Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 11 is this. Solomon, remember that prayer 13 years ago? When you asked me to be present with your people and to, to hear their prayers and to respond when they come to me in brokenness and they come to me in repentance, I want you to know, now 13 years later, I will do exactly the same for you. And the flow is back. When you read Second Chronicles chapter 7, beginning verse 11, you hear an echo of the very prayer that Solomon had prayed. But there's something else that's significant. One of the reasons we chose this particular passage, Second Corinthians chapter 7, verse 14, is because it's a summary of the entire rest of the book of Second Chronicles. What the writer of Chronicles will do is talk about five kings. And he will focus on those five kings in four areas. See if they sound familiar. The one who humbled himself. The one who prayed. The one who sought my face. The one that turned from his wicked ways. And then the one that humbled himself. It's an inclusio, an envelope, saying, this summarizes. 
What's the chronicler saying? He's saying God was present and there was this wonderful flowing of God that kind of ebbs. And then 13 years later, there's this wonderful presence of God that again kind of ebbs. And then 40 years later, through these five kings, God is there again with his presence, enlivening, enriching, reviving his people. God says, I'm still here. Seek me. But there's even a greater significance. Because Second Chronicles was written 600 years after the events of Solomon. Around 400, around 400 B.C. The people have been in exile for 70 years and are now returning to the land. They're struggling with a temple that is so much less than the last one. And there's a sense of ebbing of the presence and power and work of God. And in that context, the writer of Second Chronicles says, it's still all true. God will revive and renew His people. And the question becomes, what does it mean to us today? I know what it meant to Solomon. I'm still with you. I will still revive you. I know what it meant to those five kings. I'm still with you. I will revive you. I will fulfill my covenantal promises. I know what it meant to the people returning to the land, but what does it mean for us today? And in order to answer that, we need to answer three questions real quick. The first question is this, to whom is God speaking? Well, we know he was talking to Solomon. We know he was talking to the five kings. We know he was talking to the people returning to the land. But is he speaking to us? Or is this just a promise for Israel? And in order to understand that, you need to see to whom it is that God is speaking. And there in verse 14, he declares to whom he is speaking. He says, if my people, who are called by my name, What he's speaking about is a covenantal relationship. And when you have a name, it means that there is a relationship that exists. In a slave context, yes, it meant that that the name of that person was your master. In other contexts, it can mean a, a, a relationship. Cindy shares my name. Cindy shares she no longer uses the name Wida, wonderful German name. But now she uses the word Boyer. Why? Not because I own her. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> because we share a covenantal relationship. A relationship that if you look on the inside of our rings, it reminds us, thus saith the Lord, I hate divorce. It's to be our entire lives. That have responsibilities and has relational expressions. 
We covenanted, covenanted together. And nearly 42 years ago, we said, I will. God is speaking to the people who he has covenanted with. You want to know the good news? Here it comes. It be us. I know the grammar's wrong. It's you and me. And time limits how much we can really look. But there are so many passages in Scripture that remind us that we are God's people called by His name. I can think of the passage that's found in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 27, where it says, not only are we Christ, we are His body. We are that identified with I can read on and, and find in, in Acts chapter 4 and verse 27, or 17, where now those who are Gentiles, which is the vast majority of us, who come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior, who put their faith and trust in the fact that Christ died for them and that that death is sufficient before God to pay and to restore what was damaged because of sin that they are now called the people of God. One of the themes of Galatians, all the way through the book of Galatians, in Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 through 29, is that we are all who know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, part of the body of Christ. We are His. Whether Jew or, or Gentile, whether Jew or Greek, whether male or female, whatever it may be, if we know Jesus Christ, if we've accepted what He did as our payment, God says, you're my people. And in Second Chronicles chapter 6, and all of those verses where Solomon says, when your people, when your people, when your people, when your people, it be us. We are his people. Now, if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, we're not here to condemn or attack. We're here to invite and say it is simply an act of trusting what Jesus did. And come talk to me, someone else, and we'll be glad to share how you can know that you be, 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 you be God's people. So who is he speaking to? He's speaking to us. How does he want us to act? What does it mean to prayerfully respond to God's movement in our lives? What does it mean to prayerfully respond to that sense of dissatisfaction in our spiritual life, in our family life, in our church life, in our national life? What does that look like? What does it look like to come to God and say, God, I long to be refreshed. I long to be renewed. I long to be revived. I long for my church to have a unique sense of the flow of God's presence among us. How does God want us to respond when we're aware of that sense of dissatisfaction? Well, the answer is 
first of all this. Our prayerful response involves the normal activities of repentance or restoration or reconnecting. In the midst of the prayer as Solomon is praying in in all of this incredible glory and splendor, and they must have felt like, oh, yes, we are God's people. Right in the middle of that, in Second Chronicles chapter 6, in verse 39, he goes on and he says there, when we have sinned and we have done wrong and acted wickedly, and if they turn back to you with all of their hearts, Wait, let me begin a little bit earlier than that. I'm sorry, verse 36. Yeah, 36, not 39. It goes on, in the midst of all of this incredible splendor, Solomon says this, when they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, then hear your people. What is Solomon saying? In the midst of this spiritual, amazing event. Solomon says, don't forget. As human beings, we ebb and flow. And there's going to come a time when we're struggling with our obedience. We're struggling with our faithfulness. A friend of mine, Larry Crabb, was speaking at Promise Keepers. And he got up as he's speaking to these men. It was a gathering of about 80,000 men. And he and he's standing up there, and he and after several guys had preached, he got up and he said, "Now, guys, you're going to go back and love your wives as Christ loved the church." And eighty thousand men went, "Yeah!" He said, "You're going to go back and you're going to support your churches, and you're going to be renewed in your your faith and in willing to share the gospel and standing up for Christ." And all eighty thousand men went, "Yeah!" You're going to be godly men. And 80,000 guys went, yeah. And then Larry says, and every one of you is going to fail. And 80,000 men said, say what? There are always those times in our lives when God's work is powerful and it's overwhelming. And then there are those times when we say, God, we need you. And again, as we talked last week, It may be because of rebellion. It may be because of disobedience. It may be because of idols in our lives that have taken the place of the Lord. It may be we've just forgotten or it may just be we've become complacent. And we need to be renewed. Paul says, I forget what lies behind. And I press on. I'm looking for more of the Lord and more of that fellowship and more of that intimacy and more of the sense of His presence and more of an understanding of who He is. In that sense, that ebb and flow, Solomon is told by God, these are the aspects of a response in the midst of that dissatisfaction. And he uses four words. 
He says, humble yourselves. Jess did a great job this morning of talking about what humbling ourselves means. It comes before God and says, God, you're God and I ain't. It understands who God is in my position before him. It understands that I fall short in everything that I do. I believe that every action I take is in some way stained with my selfishness and self-centeredness. God, what I deserve is to be eternally separated from you. And God, like every single person in Alcoholics Anonymous, I have to admit, I'm powerless in the face of it. To say, God, in the midst of my struggle, I forget you so much during the day, and I'm powerless apart from the work of your Spirit. God, there's something in my life, I'm thumbing my nose at you and choosing rebellion. And God, I seem powerless to overcome. God, there's an idol in my life that I've said this is more important than my relationship with you. And its power is overwhelming. It comes and understands that apart from the work of God in our lives, whenever we get together on Sundays and we're praying, at some point something is said in the way, in somehow expressing, God, the only thing of eternal significance this morning that will take place is that which is done through the work of your Spirit. I need you. Oh Lord, I need you. Every hour I need you. We humble ourselves. Dave will talk about that. We pray. I'm not talking about the grocery list prayers. There's nothing wrong. There's, there's a rightness to that. But I'm talking the crying out to God. God, I want you. Not like the people in Exodus as they entered the land and God says, I'll give you the land, but I won't be with you. And their response is, no, God, we want you. We come to God and, and we ask and we call upon God to work in our lives. Last week we ended by talking about spiritual dissatisfaction and I know a lot of people felt that. Here's my question. How much this week did we spend either on our knees or sitting down or standing up or saying, Lord, please. Work in my life. Work in my church. Work in my Gene's going to talk about prayer. Seek his face. We begin to believe that the wholeness of our life is found in so many different ways. In the right person, in the right people, in the right job, in the right money, in the right house, in the right spouse, in the right whatever it may be. And God says to us, seek me. I'll speak on that. And then we turn from our ungodly actions. We turn away. 
we see God. We say, God, I will do whatever it takes to move away from this ungodliness in my life. If it's a habit, I'll seek accountability and honesty. If it's a if it's an indifference to God, I'll seek paths and ways I've loved. I was listening to the guys yesterday at the, the men's breakfast, and they were talking about those times when you feel distant from God. And to a man, they all said, you know what, I've learned those are the times I need to run towards him. God, forgive me for my indifference and forgetfulness. God says, that's what I want you to do. And then we ask the third question. What does God say he will do? And there's three phrases. The first one, God will hear our prayers. Now, remember, for Solomon, the, the imminence of God, the closest of God, was demonstrated in the temple where God's unique manifestation of his presence in his Shekinah glory was present. But God still has a temple. It's just not in Jerusalem. It's here. And it's here. God says, when you come to my temple, when you come out of your heart and out of your gathering, you call out to me and you seek my face and you humble yourselves before me. I will hear. Guarantee. Secondly, and beloved, we can never be repentant without this promise. God will forgive and enable those who seek Him. He will hear from heaven. He will forgive them. Now, here's what He won't do. God does not promise to heal America. God will fulfill his relational promises to his people. The reason why he talks about land in 2 Chronicles 7.14 is because the covenant with Israel dealt with the land. Returning to the land, a, a prosperous land, literally a geographical location. God doesn't promise anything about a land to the new covenant people. But he promises his, his, his presence. He promises his renewal. He promises his forgiveness. And they are on an individual level. God renews me. They are on an ecclesiastical level. God renews us. Sometimes, as you see in church history, sometimes, because of his purpose and will. God will let break out what is among his people into a city 
or into a community or into a society or into a nation. God guarantees renewal here and here. And in the new covenant, many times, he uses it. Beloved, we're talking about renewal that flows from a prayerful response to a sense of spiritual display. All of us are renewed. And I challenge you over the next week, over the next months as we work through this, put that time in your schedule. Put that time in your activity where we respond in a way that calls upon God to work in our midst. In our midst. And maybe beyond. Father, thank you for the promise in your word. We invite any that don't know your Son as Savior to come and to speak to someone, to talk to somebody. But Father, most of us here gathered know you and we would ask that you would renew us, that you would refresh us. Father, we pray that your Spirit would work in our lives to move us individually and as a church to respond to your call, to hear you, to call on you to work within us for your good.